Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Today on the podcast, Pete Dominic. Pete is a stand-up comic, speaker, news commentator, host, activist, moderator, professional speaking consultant, husband and father of two. He was the host of a three-hour live radio show on SiriusXM, Stand Up with Pete Dominic, which is the name of his podcast now. He did that for almost 12 years, the radio part. We get into that, why it ended, and what he's up to now. We have a long conversation about politics in the media, and a little caveat to that conversation. Um, I asked Pete how things have changed, or they're better or worse, since Trump got elected, and he said they could be worse because at least we haven't gotten into any wars. And of course, we dropped this podcast the day before it was announced that the president assassinated Soleimani. Of course, remains to be seen what will happen in Iran. So I just wanted to caveat that lest you think we were ignoring that information. So if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you know that I mostly dance around politics, but also make it clear that I'm very political and what's happening in the country and the world is very important to me. But this is the first time I've had an in-depth conversation about politics on the podcast. So whether you agree with what we talk about or not, I hope you'll embrace the reality of the reality and enjoy my chat with Pete Dominic. Hi, Pete. Hi, Aliza. Thanks for joining me. This You are a hard man to track down. You're very busy, but I'm super psyched to get you on. No, I, I, I that's not I appreciate you making people think that I just <laughs> I suck at correspondence. I'm very selfish, too. So like I, I felt so bad that I, I would get back to you right away. And then I didn't get back to you like two days. And I just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm more I had a crazy last three months. I'm more organized now. And I'm very excited to be talking to you. Oh, thank you. So I always start with how I met my guest. And so we kind of have a very funny. Well, OK, so I don't even know if you remember the the origin story, which was I met you through Artie Lang. Do you remember that? No, I'm start, no, I mean, it's, it's okay. So here's the deal. I'd met you once before this meeting that we were working right. together. And yeah. So we met in Syracuse, New York, you and Joe were opening for Artie Lang. And then my company, we were shooting a development reel with Artie. It was called saving Artie Lang. And it was when he was like in the throes of trying to get sober. Does that ring a bell? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you you and and Joe Matteris were opening for Artie and uh and then you were actually I think you had just started your radio show maybe that year. I was like cuz you were I was like 3 years in and I remember that now oh, vividly yeah. because I was doing the radio show it was a daily live radio show so it was always nerve-wracking to be doing it on remote. Right. And I was doing You're, that gig we were at a casino outside Syracuse, <laughs> New York which by the way is where I grew up and and so I'm in my hotel room doing the show and it was a pretty serious, I mean, there was humor to it cause I'm a comedian, but it was on a serious, uh, serious XM, serious political channel. It was like a uh, middle of the road, objective kind of politics. And there wasn't, you know, these kinds of aberrations and so on that, that occurred. And I'm in the hotel room and Artie Lang while I'm live starts slamming on the door, insists that he comes in, takes my headset microphone away from me takes over my show and says like racist stuff uh jokingly kind of racist stuff and it almost got me fired it was uh, it was but luckily Artie worked on the Howard Stern show at that time so he was untouchable so if they had let me go it would have been they would have had hell to pay Oh my god I remember the 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 hijacking of the show but I didn't know there was actually a fallout from it Oh it was a huge fallout my bosses on the channel hated that that happened on the channel and I didn't blame them I mean I thought it was entertaining as hell but, you know, 
Artie was untouchable because Howard it runs the, you know, Sirius XM basically. So I couldn't really <laughs> right. get in trouble, but they were mad at me. I was like, what was I supposed to do? The guy barged in my room. Right. It wasn't your fault. I guess. So we, so then we came up with a, a show after that with four comedians. It was you, Joe, Godfrey, and I don't remember the other Paul guy. Paul Yes, Paul. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. So we went into pitch True TV. They were interested in the idea, and I don't remember exactly what happened, but the meeting did not go well. It was kind of a shit show. Do you remember that part? Yes. And then all I remember next is you and our agent in a screaming match on the street outside the Time Warner building. Yeah, I re- I recall that. I mean, part of why I think the meeting didn't go go well is because it was four comedians who knew each other pretty well and we all had separate relationships, but we, there was no, we'd never been in a meeting together. And so everybody wanted to, you know, say their piece or one person, you know, I think like Paul didn't say much at all. And then, you know, Joe was and saying, Godfrey kind of took over. I remember that. Which should always be the case, really. I mean, <laughs> right. he's so damn funny, but he also, so you know, didn't, he doesn't really care what people think. And so he's very, a little, maybe too honest and, 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 uh, forthright, but yeah, then and and then I had my normal edge and anger in there. And then <laughs> your agent, uh, the person, I mean, I don't know what her role was. When we got out on the street after the meeting, she was critical of me and I let her have it, I think. Yeah, it was very refreshing for me because, well, first of all, it was kind of awkward because I hate conflict, but I also love honesty. So I was caught in that crosshairs of like, I love what he's doing, but I'm also so uncomfortable. Yeah, and and I think that, I like conflict and I look for it and I hate injustice. And, you know, my yes. brand is stand up. I've always stood up to bullies and, you know, I probably choose too many battles. You know, I've, I've had many an argument with, with many, a uh, authoritarian figure, including police officers and lucky to, I'm a white guy. But, but then, mm-hmm. you know, this woman really irked me and I, I probably took out at that point, my career was going so well that I didn't really care I was happy to be in that meeting with all you guys. I was excited about the potential of maybe something happening with that show, but I probably took out my frustration and anger and disenchantment with all of the, you know, industry, that side agents and managers on that woman for her behavior, which I I forget exactly what happened, but she basically said to me something about how I came off as angry, I think. And I'm sensitive to that criticism probably because it's accurate. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I, I like that explanation. And at the time I, re- I remember us like talking on the train when I got back on the train, like it was a thing. It was definitely a thing. Yeah. Everybody was happy that I said what I said, but I don't recall exactly what I said. I just let her have it. Yeah, it was, it was good. It was one of those, like, where's the cameras now situations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was the show. We went and that pitched a show, show, but the show was really the one that happened on the sidewalk after that's what everybody would have watched. It always is. It always is. I wonder where she is now. Well, she's still an agent, so we're going to just end it there and move on. So (laughs) that's her full name and address. Yeah, exactly. Off mic, off mic. Um, Okay, so moving on. So you had this radio show stand up for Pete, stand up with Pete Dominic for 12 years on Sirius XM. And so tell me, tell the listeners a little bit about the show. It was a great show. I dropped in and out of it, you know, just depending on when, where I was in the car or whatever, but it was, it was really interesting. And then, uh, and then it ended. So talk a little bit about that. Well, I got hired at Sirius XM to host a one hour daily show on the comedy channels. And I love, I fell in love with radio then. And, and, and then I wanted to make that like the, the main part of my career, the primary thing I did. 
because it kept me in town with my family. I had two little girls when I started and happily married and the burbs. And I love the idea of, you know, having a place to go and, and doing a thing I loved, but that, you know, one hour a day wasn't, wasn't enough. And so I, I kept pitching and pushing for a, a talk show and I wanted to do something thoughtful, thought provoking, something talking about problems and helping people and, and, and the world. And then eventually they created this channel at Sirius and before Sirius next merged and they bought my idea and I was in way over my head. But the idea was basically that every all every show that I heard on the radio, all these normal three hour talk radio shows, most of them were very conservative and uh, they were hosted by almost always a guy. Uh, but he was always r- the teacher. He was the host. He was, you know, Rush Limbaugh is his, his brain is on loan from God. And, and Mark Levin is this other guy who's they call him the uh. great one. So, but the idea is, the premise is that the person who's hosting the show, the Rush Limbaugh show, the Mark, the Sean Hannity show, they are the wise one. They are the brilliant one. They have all the answers. Just listen to them. They're your teacher. And I always thought that was stupid because there is no one person who knows everything about every problem in politics or in the world. And why would anybody listen to someone rant and rave? And so my idea, my premise for a show was what if I just host really smart people, including anyone listening. So if we're talking today about, you know, anxiety and you have a psychologist listening, that person can call in. If we're talking about economics, I book an economist. And so that premise, no one thought would work in radio because you're not allowed to say the phrase, I don't know. If you're the host, you're not allowed to sound like you don't know what you're talking about. But I thought, but that's normal. That's nobody knows everything they're talking about. When, when you're in elementary school and grammar school, you know, you have one teacher until sixth grade or seventh grade. Then you have a different teacher for every class that specializes in <laughs> English and math. And that makes sense. So that's what I did. I made it a classroom and I invited three or four expert guests as my guests. And I and I took calls from really smart people and we had thoughtful disagreements and arguments, but it, it, it didn't have to be conflict. It didn't have to be divisive. And it, it worked. It worked really, really well. And as being a comedian, I, I tried to make it entertaining. And I had worked at The Daily Show and The Colbert Report for years. So I created this Daily Show idea for the radio. And it was great. It was very successful for almost 12 years until in October when they killed the channel for, I could tell you, you know, any number of reasons. But uh, that's uh, that's another story. Well, what was the main reason? What do you think was the main reason? Um, I, the main reason was, I think, that the channel that I, I had created got watered down into something miscellaneous. And it wasn't this comedians hosting public interest idea that I had originally pitched when I created this channel. It was just very miscellaneous. They never really implemented the actual idea where you'd have three or four shows, at least like mine. It didn't have to be, they didn't have to be like-minded, but it have to be the similar style, like satirist comedians talking. It's like NPR with a heartbeat is what I would say. Mm. NPR uncensored, but not overproduced. And you learn stuff from the show, the discussion. And I think they they also wanted to go in this kind of, you know, everything is niche now in media. So they wanted to have a, instead of that channel, they wanted to have a a true crime channel because that was what was doing well in the podcast world. Or, you know, if you've got sports, you've got the basketball show and the baseball show and and so on. So I think they wanted to go niche. They probably didn't want to pay me my big salary anymore. And um, I'm not sure what, basically this, they said to me, we love you. We've always loved you, but we're getting rid of the channel and we just don't know where to put you. And that's when I knew it was over. 
Right. So you, I had heard you on some podcasts um, and I think on your own podcast talking about sort of the writing was on the wall, but at the same time when it happened, it was very abrupt and kind of unceremonious. Yeah, it was, it was, it was abrupt. It was unceremonious. It was, uh, it wasn't surprising because like I said, in the, in, in the last six months, I mean, they'd been talking to me about, you know, killing the channel for a while, but originally they were going to move me to the, the liberal channel, which wasn't ideal for me because I didn't want to be that guy, the liberal. Yeah. I didn't want to be branded. I think that's the problem with our country and with the media is that you see someone coming and they're either red or blue and you've decided you know everything they think and so why even listen to them? And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to surprise people with my thoughts and views on things and not be branded. But I was, you know, I wanted to keep my job and my health insurance, my 401k, so I was happy to adapt. And then I think they they basically took that idea off the table. They wouldn't they didn't want to move me to that channel after all. And so, yeah, it just ended. But but, you know, I mean, it's easy to be bitter and angry. But at the the, 12 years at Sirius XM created a a career for me. It helped me raise my family and create a work life balance. And it created a network. And all of my closest friends are people who I met on the show, either as guests or as listeners. And so it's. I can be frustrated with individuals and the choices that they made in terms of the executives, but I can't be look back at that and and be angry because it was an amazing experience and very few people get a 12 year run. And I never took a day, not one day, not one hour or not one show for granted. And so many of my comedian friends who I'd started out with would, you know, tell me they wanted what I had. They had envy for what, you know, I, I had created. And so I, I, I was very grateful at the time, in the moment, and I still am. So that's how I have to look at it. I'm t- I love that attitude. And, you know, I'm. It sucks because yeah, I went from making a ton of money and had a 401k and and an awesome health insurance. I've got a wife and two daughters, and my wife works a little bit now. She's working more. She's a personal trainer and a yoga teacher and an amazing human being. But you know, I was the you know the breadwinner, if you will, and uh, so I've got to rebuild. And it's a fascinating, terrifying time in my life. But it's 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 where I'm at, and uh, you know, it's you just have to be tenacious and 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 not give up. Yeah, I was glad that you were so open about it in terms of the real life consequences, like you said, even though you knew it was coming, even though you were grateful for the gift and all of those things, you're still a human being who dealing with anxiety and depression and all of these emotions that come up when the rug is sort of, you know, taken out from under you and you have to reinvent, well, not even reinvent yourself because what you're doing is an extension of what you've been doing, but it's not stable and it is different. So there's, there's, I just appreciated that. There's some reinvention. I mean, I think that's a fair word, but Aliza, I, was the happiest guy I knew. Mm -hmm. And I was helping people every day, you know, privately. Uh, Sometimes people knew some, but mostly people didn't. And I talked with a lot of people over the years on the air and off the air about their own anxiety and depression, including my wife had always dealt with all kinds of different stuff. Uh, But I never really knew even with my wife, what she had dealt with and how she dealt with it. And I never myself, dealt with it. So I just recently, maybe a few weeks ago, and it was accidentally, it came out on an episode of my podcast with Wajahat Ali, who's a friend of mine and a, uh, a really smart guy who's a commentator on CNN, a very thoughtful guy whose daughter was diagnosed with, with cancer, her four-year-old daughter. And I wanted to talk with him about how he dealt with that. And he kind of turned it around on me. And I basically publicly came out as someone who's dealing with anxiety and depression, but for the first time in my life at 44. So, I mean, the way to look at that is, wow, you've been pretty lucky, but also 
why not? I can, I've always considered myself someone who wanted to be vulnerable privately and publicly, but I didn't have the anxiety and depression to share like a lot of comedians and like a lot of <laughs> other <laughs> people. And now I do. And so I'm trying to balance how I share it because I don't want to make other people depressed. But at the same time, I, I do want to be transparent about it because everybody I'm learning has some amount of it that they're dealing with somehow. And now, you know, the, what I call it, the, the suck that I'm in is, can be a teaching moment, obviously for me and my family, but for anybody listening. So I, I, I'm, I'm basically sharing my experience as I go through with it, as I go through it. I was going to wait and say, well, when I come out on the other end, I'll write a book about it. I'll do it. <laughs> right. I'll, I'll talk about it. But now it's like, screw it. Let's just, let's just address it as it happens. Yeah. You know, I was listening to your podcast with Joe Rogan and I think you did that like almost right in the throes of everything. So I don't know how much you were able to, you know, you've obviously processed more since then. That was probably, I don't know, six weeks ago. And he was saying, you know, like, dude, this is an opportunity. Serious is a dying business. Podcasting is where it's at. And I'm not sure if you were able to really hear him, but I was nodding my head going like he is so right. This is going to be bigger and better than any this next phase. I mean, I just feel so excited for you because like you said, you've built all the blocks of all these people and your brand, for lack of a better word, to kind of just kill it in the next chapter. So I don't know if you were able to receive No, I wasn't. I wasn't able to hear him and I wasn't able to receive it for two reasons. Number one, that's the biggest show in the world. Right. I mean, what a platform, just that. So if if you're on the biggest show in the world, it's very hard to listen because you're just thinking (laughs) about your performance and what you're going to say next. But number two, mentally, I wasn't in the right place. And number three, I made probably the biggest mistake of my career on that show, which was to smoke pot on it. I smoked pot every day uh, for for years, but not a lot and my own. So I knew how much, you know, you, you don't smoke other people's pot in, you know, in uh, on the record in public. It's fine to do. So it's obviously it's rope. Wait, why? Why is that a thing? I, I didn't think either way of it. I just thought that's and I don't listen to his podcast. So I just thought it's kind of what they do. Well, I was like, if Elon Musk did it, I can do it. But <laughs> right, exactly. But I, I couldn't do it. it. It fucked me up in the middle of that. You know, we had a three hour conversation. Right. And it made right. me a little paranoid. Not not paranoid like I'm going to die or something. paranoid about. Am I on point right now in this conversation that everybody's listening to? And why did I just do that? And this that was a ridiculous idea. I've never smoked pot and gone on the microphone doing stand up TV or radio. Why did right. I put on the biggest platform? So then I did you feel like you had to like to be cool no, and kind of fit in? No, I can't explain why. I did. Just an impulse. Just impulsive. Because I like smoking weed and I want right. to smoke weed with, with Joe. And I, right. I, I want to smoke <laughs> weed with people I like. But yeah. but not on the, not on the record, like not on a microphone necessarily, at least not on that platform. And then we got into it on, on a couple of things. And basically, I felt like that might have been a mistake going on that show at that time. And more importantly, I got pounded and I still am by his some of, you know, probably a small fraction of his listeners. But there's millions of them over the argument on, on guns. And so right. it's funny that you bring it up because of Lisa literally yesterday I finally brought myself to a point where I said, I'm going to try to listen to my appearance on Joe Rogan and see if all the mm. things I, I, I was thinking, obviously all the things these monsters have been saying to me uh, are accurate. And what you just said is, is true. And I'm really glad that you said it because now I did hear him and it, and it was very inspiring to hear him and, and be motivated to hear what he said to me about 
the opportunity that I now have. And, and, and so now I'm coming out of it a little bit and I'm really excited about, you know, getting up in the morning and doing the work I've been doing, which is three episodes of my podcast every week. It's a ton of work. It's a lot of work and it's, it's doesn't have the stability that maybe the serious gig did, but it also has the flexibility that, you know, probably more so. So that's a nice bonus, right? Well, yeah, I mean, there aren't, there aren't really any bonuses to be honest with you. I mean, it, it's, <laughs> it, it has no stability as the idea that you're 44 years old and you're doing something that you love without necessarily knowing if it's going to pay any bills. I thank yeah. God for Patreon because I have so many listeners and such a huge community. I built a community over those 12 years and I love those people and they love me. So, you know, hundreds of them have already signed up to pay for it. And so it's paying my mortgage, but I have a lot more bills than my mortgage, but to be, but it's been two minutes. It's been two minutes. Exactly. I was just about to say that it literally (laughs) has been two minutes and the direction that media is going, everything is changing. And I think that you and, and me and anybody doing a podcast and doing your independent thing at this point, I think we're still at the beginning of, of the disruption. I agree. So we'll get into media a little bit. I just want to cover one thing just to see where you're at with it, because I, you know, I follow you on social media and right when all this happened, one of the things that you were considering was running for Congress in New York, but I think that you've abandoned that, but I'm not sure where it stands. So just, just catch us up on that. So it's like four days after Sirius lets me know that I'm done. Or, you know, maybe after my last broad, my last live broadcast, I'm watching my funeral, you know, play out on, on social media, just, you know, hundred thousands of people telling me how upset they are and how much they love me in the show. And it was, you know, it's, I only recently realized I had, it was, uh, I had to recognize it as a death. Kelly Carlin is a good friend of mine, George Carlin's daughter, not to drop a name, but she's an amazing human being. She's like, you, you had a death and you, 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 you have to go through the stages, but so I'm sitting there, it's four days after my last broadcast and I'm reading all these tweets and emails and, and thinking for the first time about day drinking. Like I've never had a glass of booze during the day in my life and I'm just wallowing. I'm like, well, you know, why not? If, if not now, when? And I get an email from my congresswoman of 30, you know, who'd been in this district for 33 years saying she's uh, retiring. Her name is uh, Nita Lowy. And I had just lost my job. I'd always thought about running for office since I started hosting that show and learning about the issues and caring about, you know, all these issues and people. And I knew I'd be good at it at at the job. And I, I was like, well, I don't have anything going on. Why not me? So I reached out to a whole bunch of people that, that know what they're talking about. And everybody loved the idea except for my wife. And my wife was the only voice of reason because my wife was like, how are we going to pay our bills? You can't, you can't apply for a job for a year and <laughs> not have money coming in. And I, we, we had a lot of arguments during that time. I was like, you know, and she believed them. And she's like, you probably will win, but we won't have money or health insurance till January, 2021. And so finally that sank in and resonated. Then I saw who else had announced and I was like, well, this is going to be really challenging. And the idea, you know, I'm going to have to go raise money every day and that's not what I want to do. And so I decided, yeah, after I went on Rogan, I basically decided that I wasn't going to run for that seat, but I am going to interview all the people who are running for that seat about what it takes to run for, for Congress. And I, you know, maybe someday, maybe a lower office than, the U.S. Congress. But yeah, I'm officially not running. All of my potential opponents can breathe easy, Elisa. They all- I, I have the exclusive. You're, you're announcing on my show that you're not running. <laughs> this yeah. is exciting. There you go. 
Big. Thank you. We're going to make we're going to make news. Now I hear you. Look, I think all your reasons are really good reasons. And it's also probably not people always say don't make any major decisions and a huge transition. And that's a major decision. That, yeah. Like, you know, may, you may funny. look back on and regret. It's funny you said it because I, I, I feel like I've gotten almost every nugget of uh, advice, but I don't, I don't know that I have heard don't make major decisions during transition, but that's, that's great advice. And Add it to the list. Made a lot of shitty choices during this transition and mistakes, but that's part of the, that's par for the course. Okay. So now you are doing your podcast three days a week. And, um, I know the, you know, a huge part, I know that you did other things other than politics, but a huge part of what you've covered and, and you've always been extremely political is politics. And when you started your show, we were in the, the wonderful comfort of the Obama era. And then obviously in 2016, everything changed. So I'm curious, you know, just on a personal level, and then in terms of how you dealt with your show and your guests and your content, how the 2016 election changed you. Well, it immediately scared me and depressed me in a way. I mean, everybody can relate, I'm sure, if if they're on you know the rational side of things, I think. <laughs> but so I it was terrifying and I, it was very hard. You know, I had just started we had just started this channel that was supposed to be a more lighthearted look at, at everything. And that was easier to do when obviously there were really serious issues with poverty and racism and climate and and all kinds of other issues, but we would we would take a look at all of those and we would address them and we would try to find the the humor wherever we could. I couldn't find the humor. And I had a really hard time for a couple months doing the show and finding the humor because it was just constant fear of the future and of this maniac and what it meant for every one of us and the planet and the country. And so it took a while, but I, I worked with these uh, two guys on my show that were really good at, at, at resolving that and trying to find the humor even in the darkest of times. And so we were able to, to do that. And we were able to find the comedy even in the Trump administration. And, uh, you know, listeners would say, basically, thank you for keeping me sane during this period. And we were pretty good at that, uh, at talking about the issues without constantly losing our minds. And I was able to find a certain balance and, and, and stability while also finding the humor wherever we could. And so we did a really good job at that for, I think, all, you know, almost three years. Was it worse than you expected? What, you know, how it progressed over the last three years? Did you no. think it would be this bad? No, I, I was, I'm still ready for even more. I'm, I'm surprised we haven't gotten into a hot war. I am yeah. surprised there hasn't been more terrorism, domestic terrorism. I all the nothing has surprised me uh, because I think I understood the nature of our country pretty well. I think I understood history pretty well and media. And so I, I think I was in a unique position to not be surprised, even though I'm a very optimistic person and still am. It's the only way to live in my mind, I think James Baldwin said, but I, yeah, I'm not surprised at all, Lisa. Like I, every, I, the, I guess the only surprise is that he, that Trump hasn't lost more support given his behavior and his choices, you know, to see that he is, you know, tied with Obama as the most admired man. That's, oh, that's surprising God. because what, there's nothing to admire, but that's, you know, I've talked a lot about it. Recently, had uh, an episode of my podcast with a historian on authoritarianism, and you know, people who are experts on authoritarians 
and cults really uh, are, are really capable of explaining why folks have not abandoned him, why he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not lose any support. It's very difficult for the vast majority of us to understand why anybody would find him appealing or likable or support him. But it's also important that we, I think, that we do try to figure out why they do. And I think I've got a pretty good understanding as to why they do. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I, I always, I kind of break it down into two camps. So there's the base that's always going to be the base that's never going to move because they're completely brainwashed and just have drank in the cool, drank the Kool Aid. And then the second camp thinks he's a moron, an idiot, an asshole, all those things. But they love their money, and the stock market's doing great. So as long as they can stay with their money, then why should rock the boat? I mean, and I, I don't know if you agree with that. I, I think that's a, a pretty good analysis. As much as I don't like binaries. I think that is that is a fair one. And I think but I think the other binary would be it's it's just a kind of there are those of us who think that the we is is how we should look at the world, how it's affecting all of us collectively. And there's no other way to look at it versus the I, the individual. What do I get? And eventually, you know, even those who are the the selfish only think about themselves, luck runs out for them eventually as well. The bottom can fall out of the economy uh, at any point, and then you lose all those investments and so on. But but there's there's also another way to look at it, which is this simple idea of, do you care about other people? Yes. Um, do, you, do you care about the well-being of other people? And what does surprise me, and I do have a difficult time grappling with anybody who – takes joy in others' pain. The, the, what is it? Schaden, Schadenfreude? Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude, however it's pronounced. <laughs> um, the, you know, this, I hate everything that Donald Trump stands for. Everything. I think he's a terrible person, but I don't want his supporters to be in pain. I don't wish them bad luck. I don't want them to lose their homes or their health or their loved ones. Even though I disagree with probably all of their principles and ideas, I, I don't want that for them. And I don't understand people luxuriating in other people's suffering. That is something I can't relate to. And, and that is, yeah. those are different kinds of people, I think. I, I agree with you. I mean, I feel the biggest issue, and this is why we're, we're, and look, I'm not the first person to say this, but it's something that I think about all the time is that we as a country are in a relationship with a toxic narcissist at, 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 at bottom, right? So we give him the oxygen and he gives us back to us, good or bad, it's usually bad. Um, and, and the media, I think, is the biggest culprit. I mean, look, we're all individually, I'm obsessed. You know, I read all everything. I listen to everything, probably just to torture myself, but also, you know, I also find solace in those who are kind of, think like me because it makes me feel like I'm not the only one who's in pain all the time over this. But I also think that the media and, 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 I, and you know, the New York times, CNN, I mean, you name it, forget Fox. I don't even know how to put them in the conversation, but they give him so much air. And as long as he gets that oxygen, he's going to keep going. And I've been, that's been the biggest frustration for me is that we cannot get out of this abuse cycle. So you're to blame, not the media because because I'm consuming the media. Yeah, because as long as you're consuming it the way that you're consuming it, they're going to keep putting it out that way. And I only learned that mm. when I when I lost my job because I had to know for that show it was a live daily three hour show, and there's no way around talking about the news cycle. You had to do 
you know, relevant things. And I try to do uh, more evergreen, you know, problems and issues and take a longer view, but you still had to be on top of that news cycle. And so I took all day, I read everything, every newspaper, magazines, and obviously social media. And I didn't, you, you kind of know what it's doing to you, but you can't look away. It's like an accident. And now that I don't have to do that, I realize that even though I'm, you know, really concerned about my own personal situation financially, only financially, I am much less stressed about the world because I'm not yeah. paying attention to it hour to hour. And so I want to fight apathy for sure. I don't want to be ignorant. I, I, I don't want to be that guy. But my podcast is different than my radio show in that I do every episode asks a question about an important problem, pretty much every episode. And I have a long conversation with an expert on how to deal with that problem. And I, I'm finding that that allows me to not be apathetic and to still fight for what's right and, to, and still know what's going on without the the constant anxiety that the 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 daily 24 second news cycle from social media to cable news brings me, it doesn't mean I don't know what's going on. I read the morning news and I read it again at night generally, but I, yeah. I have this new practice where I don't check in with social media very much. I mean, I still relapse a few times a day, uh, <laughs> right. but I try not to check in all day. And it also, you know, really ruins your productivity and distraction. Agree. And so, so when I say you're the problem, we the consumers are the problem, but also, yeah, the media is to blame as well, and I've been in the belly of that beast. I've worked at every, all three of the cable news networks, Fox, MSNBC, and CNN, and SiriusXM, of course. And then, you know, I have a huge role in social media as well, especially on Twitter and Facebook. And so I have a, I have a lot of perspectives and opinions on what they're doing wrong. But the bottom line is, you know, if it, if it bleeds, it leads. So going back to local news, you know, a murder, a car accident uh, or a yeah. kidnapping, people are going to pay attention to those things. And people don't realize, especially my generation of parents, I have a lot of thoughts and opinions and, and, and material in my stand up at that the world is actually a more safer place, especially for kids today than it ever was when we were growing up or, be, or before. But you don't know that because you hear of all every bad thing that's happening in every single nook and cranny of the planet all day long. But we didn't hear about those things growing up. We didn't have helmets growing up, for goodness sake. So the <laughs> the we didn't know where a kid, you know, my parents didn't know where I was growing up. Right. And they weren't right. worried about it. Like, how where were you all day? I was like in the woods. They're like, okay, dinner's ready. <laughs> uh, and now you don't people won't let their their kids outside, literally. So right, like on the street. Yeah. No, you're gonna get kidnapped. No, you're not. No one's getting kidnapped. And if they do, there's an amber alert. Don't worry about it. They're not gonna show up on a milk carton. We'll find I know we've all collectively freaked each other out yeah. on every level. You're you're so right. Let me ask you about Fox, because you mentioned you work for all of the stations, uh, all of the networks. I'm curious about your experience with Fox. So I, uh, I worked. The, it's the first cable news appearance I ever made was on Fox News and was on. To be fair, it was on Greg Gutfeld's Red Eye, which wasn't, you know, their main programming. It came on at three in the morning. I mean, we, we taped it, you know, at, at seven at night, but it, it aired at three in the morning. It was a, you know, more lighthearted comedy show which had a conservative uh, angle for sure. But I was, you know, when I was on it, I was liberal on the panel, but I made a number of appearances on there. And then I did make uh, a bunch of appearances on Gretchen Carlson's old show and a couple of others, but it's, it, it, it's no different really. Well, I shouldn't say it's no different. It's very different than, than CNN and MSNBC. And I can tell you why, but, but they, 
had the market cornered on actually making money. And, you know, you make cable news networks make money by being on platforms. They get what's called carriage fees. So every single subscription that that any American subscribes to whatever their cable provider is, Comcast, Time Warner, Verizon, they get whatever it is, $1.13. So a lot of their money just comes from the fact that your cable news provider offers Fox, CNN, or MSNBC. And then the rest of their money, of course, comes from advertising. But Fox News has the most viewers, so they have the most revenue in advertising, whereas CNN and MSNBC can't charge the, the similar prices for advertising. And the reason why they get the most views is because they're the ones scaring you the most. And, yeah. and, and they're the ones appealing to conservatives, whereas the entire rest of the media, I'll argue, doesn't have a liberal angle. It has a more objective angle for the, for the, for the most part, you know, science, climate change isn't liberal. It's, it's science. So they report on the science that's not liberal. Or you might argue that, you know, gay marriage is no longer liberal. It's, it's very few Americans that actually, and they're very religious, don't want to see that or anti-Semitic views or racist views. It's not most people, but that's what that's what Fox sells and you can't find that on cable news. So I, I don't really fall into the criticism that it's, you know, the, the rest of the media is liberal. I, I, I'm way to the left. So I think corporate media isn't liberal. I mean, I'm anti-capitalist. I don't see it as liberal or, or certainly not as, as far left the way that it gets described by so many Americans. I know. And it all is about perspective and where you are, because, sure. you know, someone could look at MSNBC and say, oh, they're so liberal. They never show the other side or CNN is so, you know, left or they're giving Trump too much air. You know, it's just it, it really I agree with you. It's it's make no mistake. MSNBC, um, uh, Chris Hayes, but more more Rachel Maddow and and, yeah. and, um, and Lawrence. Uh, Oh my gosh! Uh, at ten o'clock, uh, I love him. Laura, Brian Williams. Uh, no, Brian Williams at eleven o'clock. The ten o'clock is uh, Jesus. I'm, I'm. I love this guy too, but he's not Chris Matthews. No, no. Well, he's liberal. They're all liberal. No, right. And I would. I would argue that Brian Williams is not. He's more objective that that show yes. is. Yes. But but uh, CNN. The idea that CNN is described as liberal is crazy. They hire you know Trump you know, people that worked for the Trump campaign and in the White House and and a lot of objective news, you know, you know, journalist experts, you know, your your Jay Rosen's and your Jeff Jarvis's right. and your Soledad O'Brien's are very critical of CNN for providing these lies and liars every day. So the idea that CNN is liberal is is preposterous. But I agree is CNN. Lawrence O'Donnell, by the way, that's your excuse name. me. Thank you. I, I, t I tape. Me. He's the only one I record every love day. Lawrence love O'Donnell. Him. Forgive me. Uh, yep. Lawrence, if you're listening, love you, but great guy. <laughs> I hope do you're my listening. Show all the time. But the, you know, what is news? What is journalism? I think that's a question that people should have to answer. And I think it should be taught in high school civics and, and what is journalism? And, you know, CNN has a, a lot of really good, uh, international you know, reporters and, 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 and correspondents in every corner of the globe. And so does the New York times so it all depends. It's a, it's a, you know, you have to be able to just uh, separate the opinion pieces, the op-ed page at the end of the newspaper with the more objective news reporting in the rest of the newspaper in all newspapers. And I think you have to be able to do that on TV as well. And I think the problem is a lot of people get their news from television and not from reading. Yep. 
We know that's true. So here's the thing, you know, we're, we, we do read a lot, right? We watch a lot. I mean, we consume a lot of this. I mean, you could probably break down every Russian oligarch for me and tell me who all the witnesses are going to potentially be an impeachment. I mean, we, we're deep in it. But but the truth is, is that most of the country has no idea, right? They get the broad strokes and they move on with their lives and figure out how they're going to pay their bills. And you are somebody, you know, you're a stand-up comedian who who is sort of a man of the people and travels a lot from a small town. Like what are, what do people actually know and care about and how is that going to affect 2020 election? Well, I think people care mainly about their own health and, and well-being. Um, and I think that, you know, if, if you have a job with healthcare, then you're a lot better off than someone who, who doesn't. And that's me now. I don't, you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to run out of, you know, health insurance when my severance ends and I'm going to have to get it on the exchanges, which is terrifying. It's so expensive for my family. Awful. And, yeah. And so, awful. and so I want someone, you know, th- th- I want someone to change our healthcare system and make it even better than what oh, the Obamacare, uh, oh, you know, that legislation did, which is really to regulate the insurance industry for the first time. God forbid we regulate those poison, you know, monsters those, those companies. But I think that people have a larger, you know, it depends on who you're talking about. I mean, you know, younger single people, you know, this Greta Thunberg, what her concerns are, are so valid. If you're 15, if you're 16 and you're plugged in and you're paying attention, you know, the future of the planet is the only thing that matters. And so why care about anything or anyone that's not going to do whatever it takes to fix that? Forget about all of the other issues only that one matters. If you're a person of color, uh, if you are, you know, even a woman, then those are issues that that you might maybe caring about in terms of discrimination, in terms of uh, sexual harassment and sexual violence. So, I mean, everybody, you, I think you always have to take in consideration those who are struggling the most first. So, anybody who has an illness or a chronic issue that they need to, you know, buy prescriptions for, that's what their issue is. They're worried about their diabetes, their insulin. Uh, and, and then, you know, the rest, the rest of the country is a little bit, is more concerned about the economy and, and schools and education. Luckily, we don't seem to, you know, be have too many concerns right now in terms of our foreign policy and, you know, with the wars in Iraq, but we are, are still living out the longest war in history in Afghanistan, but that only affects veterans and their families and people who live in Afghanistan. Although that stuff does come back to bite us, uh, as, as nine 11, we saw in, on, on September 11, 2001, but I think most people are concerned about healthcare, their salary, their wages, and their retirement and the economy. And it's no way to measure the economy by the markets. Very few people, Americans, are invested, uh, have investment portfolios. But the news media reports on it like, you know, or even unemployment, the unemployment rate. Great. Unemployment's way down. But people haven't had, uh, uh, you know, wage increases in a generation. The minimum wage hasn't gone up in like, three generations. It's so, so I think that you have to look at it. You always have to look at it from the people who are the most downtrodden, the poorest, and then work your way up to the middle class, which is shrinking. And I think, I think wealth inequality is something that more and more Americans are are understanding thanks to people like Bernie Sanders and AOC. Right. But here's the thing, and I know you know this, but this is now we're getting toward sort of talking about 2020 election and the candidates. I agree with everything you're saying. However, everyone's saying or whatever the people that know people things are saying, are saying that, is, that people are saying 
people are saying, not me, not me, but people. I'm not saying it. Uh, I said it. I didn't right, say it. Right, right. Even though I just pulled it out of my ass to scare you all. Not the puppet. Is You're the, the puppet. <laughs> Here's the thing. Ultimately, what I hear from people, and again, I'm in a bubble, so, but I do try to talk to lots of different kinds of people, is that while wealth inequality is a huge issue, the people that are, the voters that are ultimately going to decide the election are the ones that are going to be too scared of the Bernie Sanders and the Elizabeth Warrens because they perceive them right or wrongly as socialists who want to take all their money and they want to keep their money. So I'm scared that the those candidates are too left and then the ones that are more centrist. And again, I know I'm using sort of the the lazy terms here, but just for lack of of imagination right now, the, you know, Pete Buttigieg or the Joe Bidens that, that they are not going to excite young voters. They're not going to excite enough people to tip the election. So I'm scared that we're stuck in a place where we don't have a quote unquote electable candidate. And I don't know if that's valid or not, but I'd love to hear your take. Well, I think that anybody who tells you that they know the answer to that is wrong. So I'm convinced by the smart person arguing either of those. And if I were to not really reframe it, but to say what you're saying is, is the moderate, more moderate candidate, more, uh, you know, Amy Klobuchar, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, more likely to beat Donald Trump than the more progressive candidate, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren specifically? I think those are the only two that really have a chance. Yeah. And I, I think that that's a really hard, difficult thing to analyze and predict. And, 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 and so many experts on all sides are, you know, have all this data, they say on their side, but obviously we all got the last election wrong. And so I think that what Trump was able to do is excite a group of people who had not been active and mostly that mattered. It was enough. And I think I, so I tend to actually believe that the more progressive candidate will be more likely to win. I did not believe that before, but now I believe that because I think that young people, people of color especially, are going to be really motivated to come out for uh, a Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, even though Joe Biden pretty much has the black vote still locked up. So that's you know right. fascinating to, to really to try to unpack. But, know. Uh, you know, what's going to happen is, especially if you get Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders as the nominee, and it's probably it doesn't matter even if Amy Klobuchar was the the nominee. Trump is going to destroy them every day with a messaging campaign that will resonate yeah. with even serious, thoughtful people. That he is going to whatever that candidate is is going to destroy your life, your health care, everything, and it'll work to some extent. But can that be? Can that be beaten by the excitement of those of us who who think the system? needs to change drastically to fight the uh, to climate change and 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 increase wages and decrease you know the the wealth gap and so it's very hard to predict but i think that it matters that you can excite people and joe biden i don't think excites people and pete Buttigieg doesn't really excite people they're the safer choices and i just don't think that that i think a lot of people stay home for them I, I agree with everything you're saying, except for one big thing, which is the Electoral College and the, really the five states that are, you know, are basically going to decide this election are the people that you're describing who want change, who want all of those things. Are they are they the voters that are going to decide the election? It's hard to know. And that's a really good point. It's the only point, really. You know, you're, you're it's the only you're, point. You're smart to bring it up. Uh, but, you know, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida, 
are, are, are at least four of the states that matter a great deal. And so you, you gotta, you've got to watch all them, but there could be surprises too. you, you know, in, in a state like Texas. Uh, so yeah, it could, you know, really flip the, the balance of things. And so I think that it's incumbent on people who are scared and people who care to do something every day to work on getting the vote out and fight against the voter suppression, by the way, in all yes. those states. And yeah, the candidate, the, the candidate who is the nominee does have to excite people in those states. But it's important that, that folks don't stay home no matter what. It doesn't matter who the, the nominee is. The future of the planet is at stake. So you, you've got to come out and vote against Donald Trump, whoever it is. But he's going to be really uh, good at he's going to be very effective at scaring the shit out of people. Yes, that's what he does best. Yeah. And do you have a favorite? Are you looking at anyone now that you've uh, put? Well, your I like horse? I like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders because I'm really far to the left. I mean, I think Bernie Sanders is too old, but he does. He's but he so cites young people in a way that I I once said on television that he didn't. I feel bad about that. Uh, and <laughs> and um, he's he's uncorruptible. He's just uncorruptible. I mean, he can't be bought. And Elizabeth Warren can't be bought either. I I love her. I I, I followed her career forever. And I think she's fantastic. She is the most intelligent person, I think, in the race. And, uh, but I, you know, I, I, her, her, some of her policy prescriptions specifically on healthcare have been demagogued so hard. I hate this. How are you going to pay for it stuff? I hate it because it never gets asked to Republicans or even the moderates. How are you going to pay for it? And it's very easy, by the way, if, if you wanted to, to change the way that we budget things in this country uh, and and do it the same way that the rest of the world does it to pay for healthcare and not, you know, $4 billion fighter jets. Right. But I think that to me, I really like her too. I think her biggest issue is that she has not, she, she has not quieted the fears of people who are not going to vote for Donald Trump, but are so scared that she is going to take their money and what she's doing. And I keep saying, she's not going to take your money. You're not a billionaire. I mean, she's talking about taxing such a tiny percentage of this population. It's not going to affect rich people in LA unless they're, you know, really, really, really rich. It's not even going to affect them. I mean, you know, that's what I'm saying. Like they have to be Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, it's just silly, but she's not, I don't think she's effectively messaged that. I hope that she does it better because I think that could really tip the scales in her favor. I think she's effectively messaged it. I just think that others have effectively measured, uh, in, including <laughs> her Democratic opponents, have effectively uh, messaged something different. So it's it that's you know you really you know you're really smart about all this stuff, Elisa. That that is the point. And once that she's the nominee and she doesn't have you know these Democratic uh, opponents, if she were the nominee. Uh, you know, countering her message, everybody gets behind her and, and then maybe it, it becomes more crystallized. And I'm just not worried about the votes of the super wealthy. There's just not that many of them. The vast majority of Americans, overwhelming, like 80, 90 percent, want to see taxes uh, raised on the wealthiest individuals and companies who aren't paying. I mean, that, that, that kind of sense of fairness is, is not controversial. The vast majority of Americans think that you should be taxed on your labor, on your work, not on your investments and what you own. And so I think that she can effectively message that once she were the nominee, but who knows? I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be hard because, you know, you have these things like the death tax is the phrase they came up with, which affects like four people, but got truck drivers making $60,000 that think when they die, if they died, that their 
the state would be taxed. It wouldn't be. You have to have millions of dollars for your state to be taxed at those rates. And but they don't know that. They call it the death tax and and they think it's unfair to be taxed after you're dead. And I agree with you if you only make 60 grand or even 150 grand, but you're talking about people who make millions and millions of dollars. And frankly, I don't believe that you should be able to hand down tremendous wealth to your kids. I, I, I think that 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 should go back into society, but that's a controversial opinion. Maybe. I, I agree with you, but I am pretty far left as well. And the irony of this is that I've stayed away from politics. I, I do drop it in every once in a while, but you know, my listeners, I, I get, I do get some comments on the, on the reviews saying like, leave politics out of it. And to me, Politics is part of everything. So it really irritates me that people say, oh, I don't pay attention or I don't care about politics. Well, I would, I would say to all of them, you know, and even to you, it's like, let's let's not use the word politics. I always on my show would describe it as policy. Let's have an argument about policies. And so when I, you know, when someone would ask my mom, oh, what kind of, he, he does a talk show, it's about politics. Uh, what, what, what is he, liberal or conservative? And my mom, I told her to start using this answer. I go, say this, say, well, what issue? And so we stick to an issue and we stick to, well, what's the problem? What do you see as the problem? Okay. Well, what do you see as the solutions? All right, let's talk about gun violence. Let's talk about abortion. Let's talk about tax policy and let's talk about it somewhat dispassionately if possible, but you've got to have a certain understanding of what the problem is and what the solution is, or maybe you shouldn't talk about it at least into a microphone, uh, but but nonetheless, if you want to talk about it at the dinner table with your friends, fine. But wh- how do you identify the problem? And I think that's a really big issue is that most of us don't see the catalyst of what created a problem the same. That's the biggest problem in America is that you and I can both look at what's wrong with the economy and I'll blame this all of these reasons and you'll blame all of those reasons. And then we can't even agree on what the problem is. So it's going to be really hard for us to get to a solution. But I'm always happy to engage people in that and hopefully, you know, not make the the arguments personal. Uh, but at the same time, just what is the policy? What is the problem that you see? Let's see if we can come to an agreement on that. If we, you agree that that climate, you know, climate change is a crisis and that it's because of humans burning greenhouse, you know, emissions – Okay, well, let's talk about how to fix that. We might come to a lot of different solutions. But if you don't agree on that, then then we're going to have a hard time. Yeah, and I mean, you just raised the the issue that I, I, I can't even believe that that's not the number one issue. I mean, to me, it's just, it's our planet. Like how people just don't care about climate change is so beyond me. But that's a whole other story. Well, they don't care about, I just say that the one thing about that is even if they do understand and it's a problem, and there's a lot of liberals who are guilty of this, they're not willing to make any sacrifice. Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. I mean, we're we talk about this all the time. And now we're talking about, you know, giving we're, we're definitely going to give up red meat this year. We have two electric cars. I mean, I, I feel look, am I a saint? Am I saving the planet? No, but I feel like we're really trying every day to consciously think about how to do our part. And that's important to me. Really important. to Yeah. Me. I mean, and you don't have to give up red meat. You just can't have it every day. I mean, it, like everything is a moderation and certainly we should all move to electric vehicles. I've had one since 2012. I got solar panels on my house. It's not noble. It's saving me a ton of money. Like it, yep. it, so, but but so that's not necessarily a sacrifice. You know, I think giving up the things you like to eat is a sacrifice, and other can that is. <laughs> I think that I think that um, having a really big house and keeping it really cool in the summer and really warm in the winter is a sacrifice. 
to have a smaller house and maybe, you know, lower the temperature a little bit or something, uh, or raise it a little bit, you know, but, but those are sacrifices and we have to be able to have that conversation because that's our, our, our future is at stake. And, but that has to be, it, it, it can't be individual choices. It can't be, it has to be policy decisions at the local state and federal level. You know, it's this new year, Oregon um, and other states, you know, new, new laws go into effect. And so in Oregon, there's no more plastic bags. That's great because it's great that you stopped using plastic bags 10 years ago, but you have to force people to, to yeah. change their behavior, to stop smoking if you want them to not get lung cancer. Those have to be government policies. That's my opinion. And I'd, I'd love to be wrong because it'd be easier, but I think they have to be government policies mandate. I agree with you. Well, Pete, you're very thoughtful. I mean, your your ability to go deep on these issues is is rare in the sort of public discourse of quote unquote media. So I really appreciate um, your depth on the issues. I could talk to you all day, but we are going to wrap up. Tell people where they can find your podcast, talk about your upcoming stand updates so people know how to follow you and find you. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for the conversation. It's obviously it's a lot easier to do when when you're you know, you're asking me questions and I get on my soapbox. It's more difficult when people <laughs> are arguing and I want to interrupt and they want to interrupt me and then we start calling each other names. But I, I, I don't want to be in that conversation uh, and I don't host that conversation on my podcast either. So it's Stand Up with Pete Dominic. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm on Patreon. That's how I'm now supporting my family. So that's really, really uh, responsible. Patreon.com slash Pete Dominic. And uh, I'm going to be headlining the Charleston, South Carolina Comedy Festival January 18th, Saturday night in Charleston. If anybody, if you got any listeners down there, I'd love to have them come out. So thank you so much. And on Twitter, Pete Dominic and social media all that. That's great. And I hope that people will follow you and listen to you. You're great. I really appreciate you doing this and we will be in touch. Happy to have you. Text me anytime. I hate when you do these that it's the like going to be the last time you're talking to someone. So let's it will not be oh. the last. All right, Aliza. Okay, congratulations on your film. It, it looks awesome. Aw, thanks, Pete. I really, really liked it. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks. All right. Bye. 